Cycling is so incredibly simple. And if you invented it today, you'd be given a Nobel Prize. It's just, it's just such an amazing technology. Simple, yet highly effective. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U-R-P. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and subscribe to get weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity activities in the media. In recent episodes, we have talked about the coming changes in how we as a society will be moving around. Among other things, we have talked about the rapid advancement of autonomous vehicles and mobility as a service. Today, we're going to explore the future of cycling as a mode of transportation. My guest today is Carlton Reed. Carlton is the executive editor of Bike Biz Magazine, a publication for the bicycle trade based in the UK. He is the author of Roads Were Not Built for Cars, and he's also the author of a new book, Bike Boom, The Unexpected Resurgence of Cycling. Carlton, welcome. Howdy. Carlton, I think that this is the first time we've had a guest from out of the country. You're in the UK today. In that case, I shouldn't have said howdy. I should have said good afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Where are you located? Are you near London? Uh, It depends. For an American, yes, I'm very close to London. I'm (laughs) I'm 250 miles away, which I know is like a short commute for you guys. But no, I'm in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is almost Scotland. Wow, nice. So I uh, got a copy of your book last week from the great folks at Island Press, and I started reading and. You know, when I read the title Bike Boom, The Unexpected Resurgence of Cycling, I, I assumed we were in the middle of a bike boom now. And now after reading your book, which is a great book, I've come to understand that we're not really in the middle of a bike boom, that there, throughout history, there have been significant bike booms. Can you explain a little bit about throughout history when some of those bike booms were and how do you determine we're in a bike boom versus where we are now? Sure. Well, I'd very much like there to be a bike boom because it's my day job. As you said before, I'm the editor of the Trade Mag. So it's very much in my interest to to want to see more people dodging around on bicycles. But when you look at this historically, and you've got to look at this with not rose-tinted spectacles, you've really got to look at the actual figures, you can see that now isn't anywhere near as boomy as previous periods in in cycling's history so the first major one was in the 1890s so 18 1895 1896 there was this just this huge huge boom and this is before 
really motor cars uh, became incredibly prevalent. So there was just this period when when cycling just snuck in there and became massive with the elites. So we're not talking working class cycling, which which happened in two or three generations after that. This is this is the elites of society. This is people who had lots of money. Royalty in in Europe's case, the Vanderbilts uh, in the in the US case, you know the the, the money elites, they got into cycling. Cycling became uh, incredibly popular with with that small group of people, but they're influential people. And uh, then the as with all things that are fashionable, it risks then falling out of fashion. And cycling fell hard, and it didn't recover from that particular. Uh, trough for about 15 years uh, it took an awfully long time and then in the US it pretty much killed off off cycling and cycling became something for kids for children and for cranks for people who weren't seen to be you know totally with it this is not a normal thing to do in America to be seen riding a bicycle in from the 1920s onwards however Despite that, and this is the what's well known, is that cycling just fell away. You then get these micro booms in like the 1930s. There was like a Hollywood starlet bicycling boom where cycling became incredibly fashionable for a short period. Uh, you then got uh, little booms in certain areas. So, for instance, in New York City, Robert Moses, who is is known to be the person who put in an awful lot of the, the road infrastructure and, and bridges, etc., well, he actually built an awful lot of bikeways too, which we, we tend to, to to forget, yet they, they do exist and they, they still exist, the bikeways he put in. Uh, but then you've got to pretty much go to the 1970s before there is the boom that's almost, a, well, yeah, is in fact bigger and, and better than the 1890s boom. So the boom in America in between 1971 to 1974 was in our terms today massive you know we have never ever in america certainly hit those kind of figures before so 15 million bicycles were sold at the peak and we're talking like a doubling in market size almost literally overnight and that particular boom led to the foundation of a lot of the brands that we know of today so trek specialized uh, cannondale giant from taiwan merida from 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 taiwan all of these brands that are well known today for with enthusiasts certainly were created were founded in this very creative uh, period of the of the boom years and then even mountain biking which we think of in in the industry as this amazing boom actually didn't come anywhere near to the boominess of uh, of that great American bicycle boom of 73, 74. And what, what, what drove that boom in the, in the early 70s in the United States? What was the, why was there a boom? Like with any other historical movement, it's, it's very difficult to pin it down to one or two things. It's always multifactorial, lots of things linking together all at the same time, which you can almost not trace. However, there are certainly some things which we, we think must have ha had a major um, impetus to this. So just the green movement in general, 
was coming up in the 1960s and affecting people's uh, thinking of the world. And then you had baby boomer generation getting into fitness. So you had uh, famous doctors uh, who would then recommend cycling as something to uh, stop you getting, well, stop you dying in effect. And so the fitness, the baby boomers getting into a fashionable product anyway, all of these different things mixed in with the environmental things that were, were bubbling up. It, it, it's totally surprised the industry. So the industry wasn't ready for this boom at all. But all of these vectors suddenly crossed and suddenly made this boom. And then these things feed upon themselves. You know, when something gets boomy, then as a fashion, other people take it up in some sort of weird viral way. And people were buying bicycles like there was no bicycles. And for a time, there were no bicycles. There were literally queues of people outside American bike shops trying to get their hands on this incredibly sexy product all of a sudden. And so when you, in your book, you, you differentiate between when you're talking about cycling, you're talking primarily about cycling as a mode of transportation as opposed to, a, as opposed to recreation, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I think the term you use might have been, um, m- is it mammals, uh, middle-aged men in Lycra or something along those lines? Yeah. So when people think of the boom, that's often what they think about now, the, the, the kind of the, in effect, the road bike boom and people going around as a sport. But I would say the book is is very much more interested in the advocacy side of cycling, the getting around as an, a, an everyday form of transport form of cycling because at the end of the day that's actually what uh keeps cycling afloat in that's that's your so that's a bike shop's bread and butter you know you need people to be using bicycles daily for their 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 uh, getting around uses rather than just on the weekend because then that becomes a fashion thing it's like oh well this, you know, i'll go golfing this weekend instead or i'll go to the go do some surfing instead you need people to be using bicycles uh, daily to, to really see that to be truly to be a boom. And in the book, you talk a little, you talk about, uh, I think that to measure how much people are using their bikes for kind of everyday uses, I think the term was trip shares, like what percentage of trips people are taking, they're taking on a bike versus in a car or whatever. And so for our audience, could you, you know, share a little bit about like in the United States, you know, what's the bike share now versus there are places where bicycling is much more prevalent. I think the one of the places you talk about in the book particular is, is the Netherlands. Help people understand the degree to which bicycling is popular here versus someplace like the Netherlands. Well, let, let's just use the Netherlands and put it into perspective in that there is kind of isn't a bike boom in the Netherlands either, despite what people may think, because when all the infrastructure, the famous Dutch cycle infrastructure was 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 massively improved in the 1980s it didn't lead to the creation of hardly any new cyclists what it did it stopped the decline that that was coming in so it stabilized the population of people on bikes which is very surprising because people think oh well if you build bike lanes and you're going to get loads of of cyclists and in fact what the dutch found was well that, that isn't necessarily the case there are many other things you need to to improve and include instead of just bike lanes so the netherlands 
back in the day. So when when cycling was was massive in the Netherlands, say the 1950s, cycling was at least twice as important, as twice as used as it is now. So cycling's modal share, which is the kind of the way you measure how much of a many how many everyday journeys are used by on on bicycles. So cycling's modal share today in the Netherlands on average is about 25 30%. But if you look back in in history in in, in like the 1920s, some Dutch cities were getting up to an amazing 90% modal share. So 90% of people dotting around on bicycles, 10% other stuff, you know, like motor cars and and trucks etc and buses. Uh not including that's not including pedestrians. That's just, you know, the on the on road use. So there has been and there's always been higher usage of bicycles in the past. So what we have now is in effect nothing compared to the prevalence of bicycling way back when. So so the modal share again so people understand the number the percentage of trips that are taken in a bike versus a car in the Netherlands is around 26% which is kind of staggering i think what 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 uh, how much higher than in the united states do you have an estimate of what you know or something we can compare that to in in the united states or or in some metropolitan area yeah so e- even really high cycle use areas you know the, the the portlands the oregons the the boulder colorados even these areas struggle to get above 7% 8% 9% maybe is is stunning for Uh, an american city in the uk there are certain cities which have had historically high bicycle usage so cities like cambridge famously uh, hasn't got a great deal of infrastructure uh, we never used to it's, it's getting more now but it is get, it does have lots and lots of cyclists so they are up to dutch levels they're up to like uh, 30% in in some areas in some parts of the city much much higher than that So there are some places where cycling can get very high but in North America I'm afraid even the the what are famously the cycling cities are still not incredibly dutch in terms of actual numbers of people using bicycles. One of the big things I took away from your book is I think that here in the United States we lack the kind of infrastructure they have in the Netherlands and and it's you know there's a lot of advocates for dedicated bike lanes um separated bike lanes etc and we can talk about that in a little more in a minute but one of the things i really took away from your book was just creating that kind of infrastructure alone will not necessarily induce cycling and that in fact it's if you have a situation where as long as there's good vehicle infrastructure alongside of good bicycle infrastructure people will tend to move towards motor vehicles uh, and so you almost need a situation in which the bicycle infrastructure is more favored than the auto infrastructure is that an accurate takeaway from the book pretty much i mean cities who want to increase their cycling modal share have pretty much got to bite the bullet and restrict the use of motoring because as i show in the book with with a number of examples of uh, american and and british cities which put in some pretty impressive dutch like infrastructure both in america and in 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 the uk it didn't lead to an uptick in cycling which is what you would expect so those cities 
wanted egalitarian use of transport. So they put in uh, good places to walk, good places to cycle, good places to drive. And then people gravitated to the easiest method. And that tends to be driving. So if you make somewhere really easy to drive, really easy to walk, and really easy to cycle, all of that sounds fantastic. However, you won't get that many people walking or cycling if you allow pretty much unfettered use of of motor cars because humans are lazy at the end of the day if if we can you know not expend energy and we can sit down and we can get to the uh, you know our places of work or our shops in in just this very very nice comfortable weather protected sexy well advertised mainstream form of transport then we will and cities are going to have to to work out what do they want if they want high cycle usage if they want people to be walking around they've got to stop the thing that people maybe want to do and that sounds terrible that sounds you know you're you're being anti-freedom there and all you really have to do is just give every mode an equal choice and then people will gravitate to those those modes by themselves uh uh-uh, uh they won't you've got to restrict motoring which i know as an american audience that probably sounds the most communist thing you could probably ask of anybody you know you're going to be restricting motoring are you crazy but from examples around the world that is pretty much the best way of increasing the active travel modes yeah, I think even in your in your book, you mentioned the fact that even when there is reduced um, single occupancy vehicle, if there's a really good bus public trans- transit system, people will gravitate towards that versus the biking. It's certainly w- what happened in Davis, California. You know, Davis, California had uh, Dutch style cycle paths put in from the 1960s onwards, and today has got a pretty good separated bicycle network. Um, a bicycle friendly city all sorts of vectors in its in its favor and then they put in this free bus service for students and for academics and cycle use just just fell away completely because all of a sudden uh, people were going around on bicycles just went on the bus why not it's free yeah i think about my own experience here in the north america that in some of the larger cities, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, Toronto, where I see a fair amount of bike transit, the the infrastructure is just, just not up to snuff, right? So you've got this dynamic where you've got public transportation and cars and bikes really competing for the same space. You could see a really legitimate argument for reducing the, the vehicle access uh, just because you can get more people through on public transit and, and bikes than you can on cars. Mm. But but then I think of, have you ever been to Missoula, Montana? I have any chance. So Missoula, Montana is a college town. I think it's University of Montana. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a great kind of separated bike infrastructure from the, from the road system. And I don't know if it's something unique about the dynamics, but it doesn't feel like the Car access is really restricted, but but bikes are very prevalent there compared to most other American cities, and certainly a small American city. So uh, it is kind of interesting. It's, it seemed when I went to Missoula, I thought, well, they just they've just done the right thing in terms of um, providing a good infrastructure for bikes. But apparently, there's more than that. There must be some other dynamic there 
that is yeah. encouraging folks to be on the bikes. Yeah, I don't want to 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 give people the impression that I'm I'm anti-cycleway. I'm very much not. You know, I've been in this game of uh, reporting on cycling uh, since the 1980s, and I have. If anybody wants to see my credentials for supporting cycleways, I've got newspaper articles and letters in newspapers and magazine articles all the way back to the 80s saying we need cycleways. So I'm very much in favour of cycleways, uh, but I don't see them as a panacea. I don't see them as the only thing you need to put in. And I certainly don't see them as something that uh, it's the only thing we should be asking for, which is, is often becomes the default position of lots of advocates because they just assume that the Netherlands is laced with with these incredible cycleways because they see the pictures of them. But when you actually go to the Netherlands, it's it's not just the cycleways. It's it's how everything is just connected. So you sometimes get a a relatively poor bit of cycle infrastructure in the Netherlands. However, it's connected to a good piece. And then that's connected to another poor piece. And then that's connected to another good piece. And the important bit isn't the protected cycleways part of that equation. It's the fact that everything is actually connected. Everything is mapped. Everything is signed. The surfaces are good. All of these things you need, as well as the the, the curb protection. So I, I, I think that some people, some advocates focus a little bit too much on curb protection when they could be focusing on curb protection yes but also these many other things that you need to get in place before cycle use can actually grow so it's not just the cycleways i'm i'm very much a a multifactorial person it's never just one thing that changes stuff so one of the questions you ask early in the book, maybe in the preface to your book, is why is it that even with cycleways in place, cycling is not as popular with women, ethnic minorities, and the urban poor? Did you come to a conclusion regarding that? Yeah, it's kind of elsewhere in the book. It is such a contentious issue. You know, you, you can you can be ripped to shreds on social media for mentioning these sort of things. But at the end of the day... The, the people with less money, people of colour, uh, certainly do not ride bicycles as much as, say, the, the stereotypical hipster, um, uh, kind of like urban, Port and Oregon type cyclist. And, and, and that's not something I want to encourage. I, I want to encourage everybody to get onto bicycles. But there's, it's inescapable that many communities don't see the bicycle as an aspirational form of transport. It's very much the opposite of an aspirational form of transport. And the, the, the kind of the, the white hipster cycling thing is a thing because it's genuinely a thing. It is, a, it is cycling for some strange reason now is this relatively middle class white activity and anybody who who wants to to rip me for shreds for saying that well i bet you they're white and they're middle class (laughs) yeah and i think that that's um you know you would think that one of the dynamics one of the advantages of of 
a bicycle. And one of the great things, if you had a great network of infrastructure, is that it's much more affordable than owning a car, right? So it would seem like it would be an option, a, a mode of transportation for people of less means. Um, but it's also possible that, you know, quite frankly, here in the United States, that people of less means actually have less access to quality infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. So the bike lanes might be in places that are less convenient to those folks. So one of the things, Carlton, here in the United States, there's a lot of talk about right now is transportation or, or mobility as a service, right? So the idea is that, and I've just read a, I just saw a report, I haven't read it yet, from a professor at Stanford who is basically predicting that um, people owning individuals owning automobiles by themselves is going to be a trend that's going to reverse and that the number of cars on the road will actually decrease significantly because we will be um, acquiring use access to those cars a different way other than individual ownership. Have you studied that phenomenon at all? And do you see any impact that that will have on on cars, this notion of the other aspect of mobility as a service is the notion that technology will make it very easy for you to seamlessly move from one mode of transportation to another. You'll be able to get an Uber to the bus station, the bus station, you take the bus. And at the end of the other end of the bus, you'll be able to get pick up some other mode of transportation. And, and this will all happen very seamlessly because of technology. So it doesn't have to be technology. You've just described Europe. <laughs> you know, you go to Europe, most European cities, and you can do that. They've got fabulous. We, 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 as a European, we tend to forget this and we tend to moan about our public transport. Our, our, that's how we describe it, like the public transit. Uh, yet it is phenomenal. Like you look at London, you've got this amazing underground train network. You've got fabulous buses on the top of the roads. Uh, you've got the taxis. It's just, it's so easy to get around a European city compared to an American city. So we all know the reason for that. You know, you, you built for cars too much. In Europe, we didn't build quite so much for cars. Of course, we have, we had some cities that aped America and put in these, these, uh, these highways and these freeways all the way through the city. But an awful lot of European cities either didn't do that or didn't do it to the extent that's needed to totally destroy other ways of, of getting around. And to the other point about the, the kind of the, the share economies and the, the, the transport share systems, well, that's not just for cars, that's, that's also bicycles. So one of the, the, the amazing things that's happened in, uh, it started in, in European cities, it started in um, places like Paris with uh, the Valib system, which actually came from Lyon first, uh, but then that has gone to the uh, London, so that's the it, it was called the Boris bikes. The you know the, he was the mayor at the time, and the, the, the name stuck. Uh, the the bike share bikes in London, and then a little bit later than than Europe, uh, America cottoned on to to this, and now loads of American cities are getting bike share systems put in. So again, it, it's the you don't have to own a bicycle, but you can still ride a bicycle. So what's the future? What's the future of biking? Cycling is so incredibly simple. This is why, even though it it sometimes goes into the doldrums and it sometimes disappears almost, it still keeps coming back. And I don't see it going away. I, I can imagine motoring disappearing because many other forms of mass transport have in effect disappeared. So people in the canal age just assumed canals will be the transport forever 
then trains came along. People in the train age assumed trains would be the transport forever and couldn't imagine anything new coming along. Motoring then took the place of trains and motoring people can't imagine any other future apart from mass motoring. It will change. It will definitely change. And then cycling comes in between these and just bobbles along and is a form of transport that is just a way of of taking human muscle power and translating it four to five times in this incredibly efficient, muscular efficient, as well as space efficient, as well as health promoting and, and green and anti-pollution way that is 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 absolutely something to be applauded by cities and and taken on board by cities so i do see the future for cycling as being an incredibly positive one because we certainly can't keep catering for cars in cities you just look you extrapolate the population numbers in cities and it's quite clear you cannot carry on america cannot carry on in the way it's doing it. It's going to have to go to a more European model if it wants to to actually have people getting around. If it, why would you spend four or five hours in a, in a traffic jam when you can use a train, you can use a bus, you can use for the last two miles, your last three miles, a bicycle. So these things mean bicycling does have a steady future. Whether it booms in the same way as that 1973-1974 boom? I don't know. I think it has the potential to do that. And I think the signs are there that maybe in 10 years' time it could have grown an awful lot. But it's also quite a delicate flower in that it has been, in the past, it has dropped away. So the, the current cachet that cycling has got right now, which is part of the reason I'm talking to you, that might drop away, unfortunately. That is the, also one of the potential futures for cycling. But it's going to be there because it is just so incredibly wonderful. And if you invented it today, you'd be given a Nobel Prize. It's just, it's just such an amazing technology. Simple, yet highly effective. Carlton, thank you so much for a great book. Thank you for your time. And thank you for the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and twitter by following at infin earth radio 